Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler, a stress relief coach, speaker, and host of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. Today, we're talking about eating disorders. And eating disorders, I think, are really tough. And they cause a lot of suffering, suffering for our kids, suffering for us, suffering for siblings, like the whole family ends up being pulled into that. And as I talk to parents, as we discuss things, I find that we aren't necessarily really clear on what is actually an eating disorder. When is something considered an issue? When is it something I really need to worry about? And then we also wonder like, what can I do to to support my child to prevent this from happening in the first place? There's just a lot there. And we have these huge questions. So I have Jillian Walsh joining us today and she's gonna help us unpack all of that to get a much better understanding around this whole idea of eating disorders. Jillian, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you so much, Sandy, for having me. So eating disorders, like I said, when I'm talking to parents, what I find is it's pretty scary. And in some ways, I think it can almost be scarier than talking about like a drug or alcohol addiction mm-hmm. because it's a, those are clearer lines. Like you can, you can look at it and go, well, if my child's an addict, then we need to help them just not use, but we're human beings and we all need to eat. Of and course. so I think as parents, in some ways, it's a little harder for us. So what I wanted to start out with is, you know, okay, yes, this kind of scares us. And so I think we can also tend to bury our heads in the sand and go, well, that, that's just, it's so seldom, it's so rare. So mm-hmm. is that true? Like how common are eating disorders? They're actually quite common. So when we look at the statistics, it's around one in 10 folks will be diagnosed with a clinically significant eating disorder. And outside of that clinical significance, we have a much higher percentage that will have disordered eating behaviors. So it is, it's quite common, especially right now, uh, we are seeing a significant uptick with the global pandemic. So we've seen, I would say an increase of about 50 to 60% in children and youth. 50 to 60% in youth. Of an uptick. So basically double what we were seeing about a year ago. Wow. Mm-hmm. Major That's, change. That is a major change. You said something there though, that I think is interesting. And you made a distinction between an eating disorder and disordered eating. Could you expand on that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we talk about eating, we do see eating along a spectrum. So if you can visualize an eating disorder all the way to the left, that's going to be the most extreme disorder of eating, right? It's something that is diagnosed by medical professionals as a full eating disorder. That means that it has to meet diagnostic criteria as outlined by the Psychological Association. So that is a tricky one because it means that folks have to fit in certain boxes. Now, there are lots of individuals that can approach that extreme of an eating disorder along the spectrum of eating, but they actually fall within the realm of disordered eating. So what that means is that it does not necessarily meet 
uh, what we would consider normal eating, which is eating three meals a day, not having to feel stress, anxiety, worry around eating. And it doesn't yet meet the diagnostic criteria for a full eating disorder. So there is a wide array of how folks can present under an eating disorder or disordered eating lens. And what we look at is our folks experiencing any sort of stress, anxiety around their eating behaviors. Do they have any sort of fear around if their body shape changes or their body weight changes? This might not mean that they're meeting the full diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, but it still says that something about their eating behaviors is interrupting their quality of life. Does that make sense? It does. And what's going off in my head is this idea of, well, I really want to understand that because as a parent, what I want to be able to do is identify an issue as early as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the big piece with children and youth is early intervention is the number one predictor of success in eating disorder recovery. So the earlier that folks can see the red flags, the earlier the parents can bring the child in for treatment, the better chance of full eating disorder recovery in the long term. So I'm with you, Sandy, though those indicators in the beginning, the faster that parents can see those, the easier it is for that child to pull out of the eating disorder. Well, that brings up two possibilities really fast in my mind. And one is, or two thoughts, I should say. One is, okay, we absolutely want to make sure we don't bury our heads in the sand. And and I mm-hmm. know when one of my girls had, it wasn't an eating disorder, but one of my girls had an issue. My first response was jamming my head in the sand because- mm-hmm. We don't talk about these things in our society. It's one of the reasons we have mighty parenting. So there's a place we talk about stuff that is oftentimes taboo in our culture, right? Absolutely. And the other piece is we just don't know what to do. It's Mm -hmm. something that many of us have never really had any discussion about with anybody. We don't know what kind of a professional to go to. Going to our family doctor, I've talked with the doctors and they, they help as best they can, but that's not their area of expertise. So it's like, don't put your head in the sand. There is something you can do. And we'll talk about that in this show. What can you do? The other thought though, that came up for me is in a, in a way it's kind of the opposite end of this spectrum. And that is, we also don't want to be jumping on our kids about every little thing they're doing around food, every time that maybe they emotionally eat or every time they make what we consider to be a poor choice. Because in doing so, it seems to me that we could actually increase the odds of them developing an eating disorder or some other issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it's tricky to navigate. So what I normally direct parents to is looking to see if there is an impact on quality of life and on their general physical and mental health. So if you are seeing a, an impact, a negative impact on health, whether that be physical or mental health, that is a key determining factor that a parent should be getting involved. Okay. So let's talk about let's talk about what healthy eating looks like. Yeah, for sure. 
For sure. So the big thing is, is that healthy eating is going to be so varied from child to child. It can be impacted by age, by sex, by gender, all sorts of things. So in the big picture, what we're looking at is, is the child or teen or young adult able to adequately feed their body? So it should look like being able to grow. Are they growing? They, what that means is that a child or an adolescent, right up until the age about 19 or 20, depending on if it's a male or a female, they are always supposed to increase in size. That is growth. And so with adequate growth, there is going to come weight gain. This is one of the major blocks for parents and children alike, because oftentimes they're a little bit squeamish around weight gain in adolescence. So if a child or adolescent is not gaining weight throughout those ages, right up until about age 18, 19, 20, then most likely they're stunt, they're stunting their growth. So any sort of pause in weight gain is going to be a red flag for potential disordered eating. Now, I, I'm going to interrupt you ahead. for just a second, Jillian, because my brain is spinning around this, it's stuck on this one point and it's spinning in yeah. circles around it. And I'm just, I'm having a little trouble processing the idea of throughout high school and even into the first year or two of college that our kids will continue to gain weight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, it seems like, as I think back for myself, that during those years, I, I don't feel like that was what happened for me. And I could be remembering incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's just this idea of, I also don't want to be like pushing our kids, go, you should be gaining weight. You know, there, there's such a, such a fine line we're walking here and, and balance. So I need to maybe explore with you a little bit more about this idea of our kids continue to gain weight all the way up until 18 or 19. I mean, some kids, I absolutely see it. You know, I totally, I totally see, especially you know, like for our females, the body change, well, for both cases, right? No matter, no matter gender, you're going to see changes in the body and, yeah. and some maturing. So it might not necessarily be a height growth, although it, it certainly can be that too. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. some weight gain comes with that. But again, I'm in this place of like, how do you know what, what is natural and absolutely encourage that? Yeah. So the big piece that we rely on is called growth curves. Are you familiar with growth curves? From when my kids were little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So growth curves are actually, um, they, they project right up to age 19. So we would ask a medical professional to continue plotting the growth of the child and ensure that the child is growing along their growth curve. And if you think back to what that growth curve looked like when they were a child, it's still the same vision, right? So what mm -hmm. that means is that every year, the weight is going to be higher than it was the year before. Now, depending on the age, there's going to be faster weight gain between certain ages, particularly, particularly around ages, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, and then it starts to slow but still means that there is some slow weight gain of about a one to two kilogram or two to four pounds a year up until about age 19 or 20. Now, Sandy, keep in mind that weight gain does not necessarily mean fat gain. You may not see the, the difference in the weight visually by looking at the child. You will see it on a scale 
because oftentimes that weight is going into the bones. The bones become much more dense throughout adolescence. That is to protect the children and the youth against fractures as they grow up. So the actual skeleton and the bone structure is meant to get heavier. And with that, of course, the number on the scale will go up. When we think about brain growth, even that little bit of change of the brain matter as it grows and matures, that will come with weight. That will come, up, come with an increase of a number on a scale. Same with muscle. Same with the sorts of changes that are going to come with puberty, you know, with re reproduction, especially for females, there's going to be changes in the reproductive system. So that is going to come with weight gain. It doesn't necessarily mean that their clothing sizes will change, but the number on the scale will change. Does that help okay. clarify a little? That For me, that clarifies a lot. Okay, and it good. also pointed out to me, again, we all have different lenses that we look at life through, that we look at things through. And I really was thinking very much about body shape and size when you mentioned it, but what you were actually indicating was more about the number on a scale. So it's a reminder to us as parents too, that we all have a lens and there are a lot of, there are a lot of our own thoughts or baggage that can impact this too. Of course, of course. And that's the big piece is that as parents, you can advocate back to the medical professionals to continue to plot your child along their growth curve. Because just as much as we all have an individual lens, so do our family physicians. Um, and sometimes that family physician isn't necessarily too concerned about things such as weight gain throughout adolescence. So it's important to advocate on, on behalf of your children to make sure that the red flags are being screened for. And weight is just one of those red flags. Right. Because what you were, what we started out talking about, as you said, if they're not gaining weight, they're being malnourished. And when you went through that list, I'm like, oh my goodness, their bones, their muscles, their brain, their reproductive mm -hmm. system. These things are all still growing, even though maybe they've achieved their full height and stature, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they still have all these other things going on. And with our crazy diet culture and and that's like a whole can of worms in itself, which we did talk about on another show. And I'll make sure to add that to the show notes so we don't have to go too much into it today because there's so many other Beautiful. things we want to talk about today. <laughs> um, it is so easy for our kids to be malnourished. Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially this day and age, right? Because there's a lot of messaging, like you said, around diet culture that is constantly telling these children and youth that you shouldn't eat that much. That is too much. Make sure you are not eating that. You should be eating this. And there's a lot of diet culture messaging that is absolutely shaking, shaping the choices of the children and youth. And that is oftentimes just noise that is contributing to this eating disorder brain that eventually can snowball into a full-blown eating disorder. Okay. So let's Let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've touched on, started to touch on this idea of why this happens, why our kids are susceptible to developing an eating disorder. What, what are some mm -hmm. of the causes of this? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about the cause of an eating disorder, there is no one answer. There is no one cause. We still, to this day, regardless of the repeated research trying to find a cause, it just keeps coming up time and time again that it's a, an array of 
in, or um, an array of factors that are impacting the development of an eating disorder. So for example, we know that genetics play a role. We also know that environment plays a role. We are seeing a significant impact of social media and that's only come up in the past, say 10, 10 to 15 years. So there's almost this perfect storm that's coming together with all of these possible contributing factors. But at the end of the day, oftentimes there's some sort of trigger. And what I hear in my one-on-one -on -one sessions is maybe it's bullying, maybe it is a recent breakup where the partner has pinpointed um, appearance. There's a lot of different scenarios that can trigger the full-blown development of an eating disorder, but it tends to have been piggybacked on this foundation of genetics, environment, et cetera. So as I look at this and I'm thinking about this idea of susceptibility, mm -hmm. and, I, and I also mentioned the idea of lens, I know one of the common thoughts is that eating disorders happen to girls. But I'm wondering if gender really plays a role in that susceptibility, male, female, non-binary. Do you see any, any groups that are more likely to develop this or seem to be kind of immune to it? Absolutely. So the statistics as they stand right now is that males um, are impacted about 10% of the time. So 90% of the time it will be female, 10% of the time it will be male. Right now, we also know that the LGBTQ plus community is absolutely more susceptible than others. So the statistics are still working their way out right now in terms of exact numbers. The most recent numbers I'm working with is one in 10 folks with an eating disorder will be male. Okay. And you said our LGBTQ kids tend to be more susceptible. Much more, much more. Likely susceptible. because of all the other strains that are happening as they're, as they're learning about themselves, accepting themselves, getting other people to accept them. Potentially. And I think we should also point out that there is a, there's a certain role that an eating disorder can play with, with gender presentation. So for example, you can suppress puberty with restriction with eating disorder behaviors. So for somebody that is struggling with body dysmorphia and does not want to experience breast growth, they can absolutely stunt or put off puberty through an eating disorder. And I think that is pretty common knowledge with the LGBTQ community, that if they are restricting their intake, if they're preventing weight gain, then they can also prevent the, the growth of breast tissue. So these are conversations we need to be having with our kids. What are some of the other things just across, across all kids, all teens, young adults that you see what are some of the other things that maybe it's important for us to be aware of so we can bring up and conversate with our kids? So, you know, for example, in that case, I know um, we did a, a gender identity show where the mom talked about her experience of dealing with this. And, and one of the things that they went through was do we or don't we uh, put off puberty? So that could be part mm -hmm. of that conversation. What are some of the mm -hmm. other things that might be coming up that are important for us to just say, hey, you know, if you're thinking about these things or if these things are happening in your life, I want you to know, I, I may not know exactly how you feel, but I get that they're happening and I want to be here and I want to help you. 
Absolutely. I think the big piece that I tell all parents as a ground zero is to start with demoralizing food. So instead of labeling food as good and bad or healthy and or unhealthy or clean versus junk food, having this blanket statement that food is food and that at the end of the day, we all need food to survive. And eating foods that diet culture have told, has told us is bad or unhealthy does not make us a bad person. And for folks that are already susceptible to development, developing an eating disorder, what we often see is that they have internalized a lot of this messaging. So for example, I must be a bad person if I'm eating food that diet culture tells me is bad for me. I must be unworthy. I must be undeserving. I must be unacceptable if I'm consuming food that is unacceptable to success to society. So for example, historically, we hear a lot of junk food, you know, being described as chips or candy or chocolate or soda. So of course, we have folks that internalize that message and say, Oh, my goodness, if I'm eating potato chips, then I must be unhealthy, I must be a bad person. And there's a lot of this value, moral value that first is tied to the food, and then as a child, adolescent, they pull that value over onto themselves. And we see a major hit to self-esteem. We see a major increase in anxiety, an increase in the stress and fear around their body changing for fear that they may not be accepted, for fear that they may be bullied, for fear that they might not be desirable to somebody you know, looking for a romantic connection. Does that make sense? It does. And this is a thread of the conversation that we had touched on in a previous episode. And it's one that I, as a parent struggled with, and I'm still thinking through and working through, like, how do I feed my family what I believe to be healthy and still send these messages? You know, how do I let go of those reins and go, okay, teens, young adults, you, you eat, whatever you feel like you want to eat and, and just let that go. If, you know, if we see that our child is consuming primarily Twinkies or whatever. Right. Right. And I think, I think Sandy, it starts with the parents, right? So the parent's job is to model what is a well diet, what is going to fuel your body for the activities that you need. So instead of highlighting that the kids should be eating differently, the parents need to learn how to fuel their bodies appropriately, how to, you know, have all sorts of foods that are going to make sure our energy is high, make sure our muscles are fueled, make sure that we're having great digestion. And then from there, the, the parents use social modeling to demonstrate to the kids at home, what a normal, what a well-balanced diet can look like. We don't want to Pin, pinpoint the, the kid's diet as something different from the family as a whole. So oftentimes I spend a lot of, a lot of my sessions reteaching families, the parents, especially how to nourish their bodies outside of being influenced by diet culture. Once the parents buy into it, once the parents understand, oh, absolutely, maybe we shouldn't be buying um, low fat sour cream. Maybe we shouldn't be buying zero sugar yogurt then the parents model it to the kids and the as the full family system, the family unit as a whole start to move more towards a wellness mindset instead of a restriction or diet mindset. 
So talk to me a little bit about a wellness mindset versus a diet mindset, because I, I don't know for certain when you say diet, if you're just talking about diet as in these are the foods we eat, or if you're talking about diet in terms of weight and mm-hmm. what I'm learning, and I might be misunderstanding this is that even in the wellness side, there's still a lot of diet culture. There's what should we eat? What shouldn't we eat? I know when I went down that rabbit hole, it made me absolutely crazy. And my family kept asking me, well, should we eat this? Should we eat that? Should we? And I'm like, I don't know because the experts don't agree. So there, there's just, there's a lot there. You're absolutely right, Sandy. And so this is the tricky thing because in my brain, I use diet as, as free of diet culture, simply to describe what we consume like nutritionally in a day, but diet culture has absolutely taken that word and make it, made it seem like we're talking about weight loss diets. So let's tease that out first and say, when I'm talking about a diet here today, what we're referring to is only the intake of food, big picture. We're not putting any sort of expectations outside of it, simply being the consumption of food. Does that help to clarify that first? Yes. Well, so we're on the same page, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when I talk about a wellness mindset versus a diet mindset, diet culture is absolutely hanging out over in the diet mindset. And for folks that are steeped in diet culture, they are living with a brain that hangs out in diet mindset. It's the thoughts of, oh my goodness, we can't eat that for fear of maybe gaining weight, for fear of becoming fat, for fear of not fitting into our clothes. There's lots of thought processes that are rooted in diet culture that absolutely pop up in this diet mindset. It's also considering foods as good and bad or healthy versus unhealthy. Whereas wellness mindset, what we're looking at is really defining what health means to you. It's an internal decision. It is something that is not overly influenced by external factors such as diet culture. And instead we turn inward and we say, okay, what does our body need right now? As a whole, as a society, we, most of us understand that we need carbohydrates, whether or not it's grains, starches, fruits, vegetables. We all know that we need some sort of protein, whether or not that's plant protein or meat protein. We all know that we need some sort of fats. And so at the end of the day, can we turn inward and feed ourselves appropriately in terms of giving our body what it needs and not getting caught up in what diet culture is telling us is good or bad. It's really rooted in this shift. It's a mind sh- mindset shift to having no moral value to food and focusing on health without it being tied to weight, because there's lots of factors that can improve health. We know that eating every two to three hours can improve concentration. We know that fueling our bodies and meeting our own nutritional needs can help have great or positive sleeping uh, patterns. So there's lots of determinants of health that are not connected to weight. And when we're looking at that one in 10 that is going to develop an eating disorder, I don't think there's any harm in having folks shift from a diet mindset to a wellness mindset. But for that one in 10 that is at risk of developing an eating disorder, 
it can absolutely be protective to them developing the eating disorder. And it's something I recently started playing with myself, just my family, like I said, we weren't looking at, at diet as a way of dealing with weight, but a way of dealing with wellness. And you can still have the same, I think, issues arise. It's just that you are talking about wellness instead of weight. And you can still have the same problems that could create an eating disorder. You're just, you're kind of hiding behind health in doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we see a lot of times is the diet mindset, diet culture as a whole is one of the number one, it it is the number one risk factor for the development of an eating disorder. So when you look at the statistics, about 80%, if not more of folks that start, so eating disorders, when you look back to how their eating disorder started over 80% started because they began a diet. And that, when I use that word diet, that's what I mean by diet culture, you know, restriction, cutting out foods, taking shakes, whatever that looks like over 80% of those folks went on and to develop their eating disorder. So it's very, very tricky when we look at, you know, dieting as described by diet culture, which is the restriction with the ultimate goal of losing weight. We know that that can snowball into an eating disorder quite easily. So we want to, we want to stop it at the source. And like I said, this is very new to, to shift that mindset around instead of here, here's what's healthy, eat these things versus what's not eat in moderation, eat once in a while, whatever. But that going inside and just going, what does my body want right now? And I'd read somewhere, someone talked about it as an above the neck decision or a below the neck decision. And I could start to, you know, as I started doing this, you start to see, oh, okay, this is like, this is a habit. When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, we had milk for dinner every day, except when mom made pizza and we had a pop. And I was in my forties before I could have a piece of pizza without craving, seriously craving a pop. But that was just a habit. That was that was a, a mindset thing. But as I go inside and listen, I start to get this sensation, this, this below the neck thing of, no, this is what my body actually wants. And it was so freeing to not, like you said, be restricting and limiting and going, oh, well, you can't do the crackers or you can't do that, or you can't do this. It was just sort of, I would walk through the grocery store and kind of look around and go, what? And, it, and I might start to reach, not reach, but think about, go, well, do I want, do I want cookies? Do I want chips? And it's like, no, I don't. And I'm like, oh, but I can have them later. If I want them, I can always come back to the store. There was so much freedom and empowerment in that. Absolutely. And I would say, because you mentioned, you know, this, this concept or this um, experience of having pop with pizza night, you know, once a week or whatnot, to me, that sounds like a lovely experience. That sounds like something that you link to social connection. And I would argue that if you took that, that soda pop out of the, the pizza meal, does a part of you feel like something's missing? Does it not bring you back to that family meal with your mom, you know, 20, 30 years past? Or was it more so linked to the pizza? Because food is more than just food. And there's a lot to be said about social connection. There's a lot to be said for comfort that we can find in food. And this is something that's been absolutely 
negate it by diet culture because diet culture doesn't want folks to have emotion tied to food, but if food is emotional. And just as much as if a birthday is circled around ice cream cake, if we switch up that ice cream cake for something that's more in line with diet culture, for example, angel food cake, is something missing? It, are we robbing the child or robbing the teen of a, of a piece of their memory of their childhood for the sake of, of diet culture? Do you see what I'm saying? How food can be more than just the food? It is. And it's so interesting because as you talked it through, I kind of went back because when you start talking about it, I'm like, for me, no, I actually felt better having something else to drink. It could be water. It could be tea. It could be juice. It could be whatever. But I felt better with that than the soda. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's because it wasn't about connection. And yet I also think of many circumstances where, yes, as you said, a, a food, a favorite food, a special food is a part of ritual, tradition, connection, comfort. And I, and I love that idea of keeping that because even through crazy diet changes that we made when we weren't supposed to be eating noodles or cheese or whatever someone told us we weren't supposed to eat at that point, we still had macaroni and cheese on Christmas Eve. Right. Because that's what we've done since my kids were little and that's what Absolutely. they wanted to do. And it was, it was part of the ritual and I can see how that is important. And, and I'm grateful that we kept that. Um, so let's, let's talk about for a minute, if we think, well, what are some signs that our child might have an eating disorder? You said, you know, look, look for if there's a change in their quality of life. Is there anything else? Like, is there anything that maybe should trigger us to go, well, pay attention and see what their quality of life is like? Are, are there some habits or some behaviors that can just be a red flag to say, hey, parent, pay attention? Yeah, absolutely. And so we like to tease these out into physical signs, emotional signs, and behavioral signs. So if we're talking about physical signs, oftentimes we'll see that children and youth are complaining about digestion. They might see that they're feeling bloated. They're feeling really full. They might be constipated. They might be complaining of acid reflux. So any sort of digest digestive complaints, we always peak our interest too. We always want to put an ear to that. Then oftentimes we want to be paying attention if somebody's saying that they're feeling cold. If you're noticing that their extremities are cold all of a sudden. So if you reach out to your child and you get a hold of their hand and you're noticing it's a lot colder than it usually is, that can be another sign that their body's malnourished. If they're complaining about brittle hair, brittle nails, that's another red flag. There's lots of ways that the body can show or can demonstrate malnutrition that isn't going to be super obvious, but if you're paying attention, you might notice it. So physical signs, those are the big ones, especially digestive complaints. And then when we talk about the emotional piece, if you're noticing that your child is more irritable, especially around mealtimes, if you're noticing that they are not coming to the dinner table or that they're eating in secret, that can be a red flag. And then behaviorally, if you notice that they are avoiding outings, so if they're not going out to eat with their friends or they're not going to family meals, that can be a major red flag. If you notice that they're cutting out certain types of foods or they're not eating as many times a day, 
If you notice that they now all of a sudden have to work out to burn off a meal, that also can be a red flag. Is that helpful, Sandy, in terms of some of the things to look for? It is. So the idea is okay. if you see these, do not jump to a conclusion. No. Just get curious and go, hmm, I wonder if something is going on. What would the next step be if our curiosity is peaked or, you know, we see something goes, oh, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. So from there, I would recommend that you start to reach out, start to do a little bit more research, maybe head to an eating disorder blog, read a book on eating disorders, um, start to look a little bit more, start to build your own knowledge in it. Then if you're saying, okay, maybe there are more red flags than I initially thought, that's the time to book an appointment with your family physician. Now, keep in mind, family physicians are not eating disorder specialists. And sometimes up to 70% of family physicians will actually miss the diagnosis of an eating disorder. So what we normally recommend is that you go to the family physician and you ask for a referral either to an eating disorder specialist or to a pediatrician. That way you'll have a much higher chance of getting in front, in front of the eating disorder specialist who can really give you a clearer picture of whether or not you're dealing with what could potentially be an eating disorder or maybe it's something else. And during this time, what about our child? What, what do we say to them? How do we have a conversation around this that is most likely to be beneficial to them? I think the big piece is to go back to, you know, that gentle parenting, positive parenting, talking a little bit more about the attachment styles. We want to make sure that the child is feeling seen, that they're feeling secure, that they're feeling safe, and that they're feeling heard. So if you can validate your child, if you can continue to show up for your child and continue to support them, even if you're not quite sure how, just being there for them can be very helpful. Usually in the beginning stages of an eating disorder, the child is going to be very much run by the eating disorder brain. So it's really difficult for parents to call out the eating disorder as it is. Instead, try and shelter the child as much as you can from doing harm to their body and really work at getting connected to an eating disorder professional who can help you navigate that conversation with the child without pushing them further into the eating disorder brain. The tricky thing is with kids and youth is that if they're steeped in that eating disorder brain, they will get very angry if you start to poke if you call out the fact that something they're doing is not right or that there is a risk to their health, the eating disorder brain will absolutely get activated and become very defensive. And when you think about this, it is a mental health issue. So the eating disorder brain will absolutely rear its head and it will try and do whatever it can to claim its stake on that child's brain. So it's going to push the parent away as much as possible. Sometimes this looks like the child says, no, there's not an issue. I'm fine. I'm fine. You're overreacting. Other times it's almost like gaslighting. It'll, the child or the eating disorder brain will say, say to the parent, you don't know what you're talking about. So it's very important for the parent to seek outside support because once the eating disorder brain is there, it's going to do whatever it can to remain there, to remain present. And that absolutely needs the help of a professional to start to navigate how to 
unmesh the eating disorder brain from your child. And what about the parent? This, this is difficult. This is not a one and done. You don't go to the doctor and get a shot and your child is fine. This is a protracted process. Or even if we are not dealing with an eating disorder, but you know, we're, we're seeing disordered eating and we're trying to make some, some changes in the family, even maybe trying to change the way we communicate. You talked about positive parenting and, and that's what we advocate here in terms of our communication with our kids. Right. But that all takes time to build. Mm -hmm. This can be really frustrating for parents and it can be hard on parents. What do you recommend for us? Absolutely. I find for parents, it's seeking community, trying to find like-minded parents who aren't going, so you're not going through this alone. It is something that's been stigmatized for many, many years. And I think folks negate the fact that it's one in 10, which means that if you're going to dance recitals, if you're going to soccer practice, if you're going to parent-teacher meetings or PTA meetings, Oftentimes you are sitting in a shared space with somebody else that's going to through a similar issue. So trying to seek community can be very beneficial for parents. And I think we also need to bring attention to the fact that there is a genetic component. So there is a fairly high chance that if a child is showing eating disorder symptoms, that a parent in the household may also have a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating as well. And I hear a lot of times that families and parents will feel an increase in their own disordered eating thoughts. So it can be helpful for the parent to seek out their own counsel to get their own help and support in case they're feeling that some of the stuff coming up with their child is actually triggering some of their past eating disorder thoughts, feelings, and emotions as well. Well, thank you so much, Jillian. There's so much here and you unpacked a lot for us today. For anyone who wants to find you online or find out more about the work you do in treating teens and helping families, where can we find you online? Absolutely. The best way to find me is at changecreateschange.com. That's our website. And from there, you can navigate to our free resources. We do free blog posts, free um, webinars. There's lots of different ways to learn a little bit more there. And that's definitely the best way to get a hold of me as well. You can book a free call if needed. Well, thank you again for sharing so much and giving us so many insights and such great help. Thank you so much, Sandy, for having me. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here. No one should have to feel alone in their parenting journey. And we also want to make everybody's journey a little bit easier. So please share the podcast with another parent to help them with that. And thanks for joining us today, for being part of the Mighty Parenting community. Remember, you're here, you're listening, you are a mighty parent, so you got this, and I will see you next week.